please be seated. We're looking today at question 48 in the Shorter Catechism. And this is the last question that has to do with the first commandment. So let's do confess all of the questions that, have to, that pertain to the first commandment, starting with question 45. Question 45, which is the first commandment? The first commandment is, shalt have no other gods before me. What is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. What is forbidden in the first commandment? The first commandment forbiddeth us denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. And then today's question is question 48. For me in the first commandment. These words before me in the first commandment teach us that God who seeth all things taketh notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. It's interesting to observe that the Lord included these words before me in the first commandment. He might have simply said, you shall have no other gods, and left it at that. But he added these words before me. And we shall see today that these words were added to help impress upon us the importance of keeping this commandment. We need all the help that we can get in uh, helps of, for, for keeping a commandment, any of the commandments, and especially this one. As those who have been redeemed, it is our earnest desire to serve the Lord, but we find that evil is present with us, those who desire to do good. Therefore, when the Lord attaches something onto one of the commandments that he's given us, it's designed to help us to obey it, then we should look at that attachment as a thing of great importance and service to us. We should make the most of it, in other words. So today we're going to try to make the most of that, uh, those two words that are attached to this commandment, how it will help us in obeying the first commandment. We'll look at what they mean and how they can help us to keep this commandment. So today for our scripture reading, I've chosen a passage that shows us how reprehensible it is for us to have other gods before the true and living God who has redeemed us. It presents it under the, the um, figure of adultery. Our relationship with God in the Bible is often presented as a marriage relationship. And when we have other gods, then it is spiritual adultery or harlotry. So the passage I have in mind is Ezekiel 16. And right now I'm going to read the first 30 verses. We're going to read some of the other verses later on in the sermon, but I'll begin with uh, the first 30. It's a very long passage. But as I read this, pay attention and notice how God who sees all things takes notice of and is especially displeased with the sin of having any other God. 
That's what we see in this. This is a whole chapter on those two words. <laughs> How displeased God is that we would serve other gods. So give attention to the word of God. Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan, Canaan, and your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. Now, so in other words, there was nothing attractive about us is to be God's wife, to be his bride. And so we should be really glad if he takes us up, shouldn't we? Verse 6 goes on. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil, and were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord." But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Now, I just want to make a little comment here just to keep you tracking. So you think about that with Israel and how God took them up, made them his bride, and nurtured them, cared for them as, uh, until he brought them to the maturity, and then uh, the marriage occurred, but then you have here going after other gods. Think about Solomon, you know. He started making temples to other gods when he married the pagan wives, and the people began to worship Baal and all these things. So listen to what he says, verse 16. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high, gar- multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen, nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set oil and my incense before them. My oil and my incense before them. 
Also my food which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and struggling in your blood? Then it was so after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor, Chaldea. And even then you were not satisfied. How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God. Seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. And that's where I'll end the reading for now. You see that the Lord God is intensely concerned that his people should have other gods before him. He is greatly displeased by this sin. Now, of course, the first commandment belongs to everyone who has God as his creator. No other gods before me. And of course, that includes every person without exception. But this commandment is especially addressed to the people that belong to him, the people that he has redeemed. And it's especially offensive that those who not only were created by God, but also redeemed by him to become his bride, should have turned to harlotry to other gods like this. This is what Ezekiel 16 focuses on and what we're going to focus on today. I want to begin by showing you what the words before me actually mean in the first commandment. There's sometimes confusion about that. There's two ways that you could look at the words before me. Before me could mean greater than me. You know, before me in importance, more important than I am. It's, it could mean that. Or before me could mean in front of me, in my presence, before my face, that kind of thing. In evaluating these two options, I want you to consider the imagery of adultery that God uses in Ezekiel 16. So, does a husband say to his wife, I don't want you to have any other lovers more important than me? In other words, it's okay if you have a fling with a few people as long as they're not more important than I am. Is that what a husband says to his wife? Well, no, that one doesn't really work. Okay, so does he say then, well, I don't want you to have any other lovers 
before me, like where I can see it. If I don't see it, it's not really a problem. It's okay for you to have an affair as long as I don't, I don't see. Neither of those, at first, seems to work very well at all, does it? <laughs> like, so what is this really saying? No reasonable husband would say that adultery is okay as long as he was loved best, and nor would he say that it was okay as long as he doesn't see it. So how can we make sense of the words before me as they are used in the first commandment? When you stop and think about it, 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 uh, who it is that speaks these words, it makes all of the difference. If you consider who speaks these words, then the second one makes sense. When a husband says, don't you ever bring an adulterous lover before my face, there's a real, very real possibility that his wife might have a secret affair that he doesn't know about. In fact, that's the way most affairs begin. She doesn't bring her lover home and lay with him before her husband's face. She does it when he's away. That's, why it, that's, that's the way it's usually done. But when God Almighty says, don't you ever bring an adulterous lover before my face, there's no other way to do it than before God's face because the eyes of all things are open and naked before the eyes of God. It's impossible for us to have an affair with any other God, even in the most secret, remote place of our heart, without God seeing it. It's before his face, because God sees and knows everything. He even knows our very thoughts and intents. There is no possibility, then, of sneaking around before him, before whom all things are naked and open. And this is clearly what the words before me mean in the first commandment. In the original Hebrew, the words are al-pani, and the word pani means my face. The E part at the end is the my, so face of mine, face of me. And uh, alpani then means before my face. God is telling us that we're to have no other gods before his face. And you can't have another God, as I say, in any way whatsoever that it's not before the face of God. So these words are added to jolt us into the reality that we so often miss. The reality that when we take other gods, we do it right in the face of God, right before his face. He is always around. Some of you children have learned the the children's catechism, perhaps. It asks you, can God see you? And the answer is, no, I'm sorry, can you see God? (laughs) Can you see God? And the answer is, no, I cannot see God, but he can always see me. Oh, God is emphasizing that whenever we worship God and other gods, he always sees us. Every stint that you have with another God is paraded before the very face of God. Now the question, what kind of brazen, shameless woman is it that would dare to caress her lover right in front of her husband's face? That's exactly what you do when you adore, trust, or submit to another God. You must never suppose that God does not see and take notice of, as it says in the explanation of the catechism. He sees and takes notice of all of your spiritual adulteries. There is no exotic sin. 
There are many everyday, this is no exotic sin. There, there are many examples of it. He sees you whenever you adore money as the thing that will make your life full and complete. And when you praise riches as if your life consisted in the abundance of the things you possess. When you forget that riches are God's gift and you turn from God to commit adultery with money. Even so that you're willing to put aside God's commandments to get more money. Trampling over your neighbor whom, you're, whom God calls you to love. Um, refusing to tithe of the first fruits of your income. Um, taking advantage of people and uh, business, whatever it might be. He sees you likewise whenever you trust in military power instead of recognizing that he alone keeps you safe. When you trust in horses and chariots instead of in the name of the Lord your God who alone can protect you. He sees you whenever you choose to step out of harmony with his commandments in order to please your family, for example. In other words, you want to live in harmony with them rather than in harmony with God. Spiritual adultery. You break the Sabbath because of pressures from your parents or when you reject his call to discipline your children because it's not pleasant to you to discipline them. So rather than doing the will of God, you turn away from that. You have another God. These other lovers are brought right before the face of God. He sees it. He takes notice of it. He is much displeased with it. God talks about how brazen this sin is in Ezekiel 16. In verse 30, he says to his people, the last, this is the last verse we read, how degenerate is your heart, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. The brazenness is seen in the fact that it's done right before the face of God. A person is brazen when they're like brass. That's where the word brazen comes from, brass, brassen. They're they're brazen. They're hard and they're unconcerned about what an authority thinks about them. They harden their their forehead. A, A wicked child will curse his father and mother in secret, but a brazen child will curse them right to their face. You see, a wickedness, a wicked child will curse their parents, A brazen child does it right to their face. To add to the brazen wickedness, God also shows how desperate we present ourselves before his face for these other lovers, as if God was not good enough. He pictures his people clamoring after these lovers, so much so that they actually turn things around backwards. Now, we didn't, here's a verse we didn't read, Ezekiel 16, 34. He says, you are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot in that you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are the opposite. Usually a harlot is paid for her services, but when we go after other gods, we hire out the other gods. This is so inappropriate. It's the height of impropriety. In Judah's case, they were hiring out the Egyptians and the Assyrians to protect them when they had the living God to protect them. The picture here is of all the trouble that we go to to worship these other gods. How we go out of our way to serve them. How we make sacrifices to get them to to give attention to us. As if we were desperate, as if we have no God. 
In verse 15 through 25, he shows how they took his gifts, what I read to you, and sacrificed them to these gods. They built places of worship for them. They even offered their children as sacrifices. God says, my children, because this is his bride, and he's the groom, he's the husband, these are the children. He says that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by these other gods, by causing them to pass through the fire. That's always what we do when we worship other gods. We end up putting our children into slavery to those gods that we are serving. We take God's gifts and we offer them to another. And yes, we even offer our children as sacrifices to these gods. A mother will offer her child up on the altar of convenience or on the altar of saving face when she had an unwanted pregnancy. She sacrifices the child that God has given her to the gods of convenience and personal comfort. Mothers can do that even in their care of their children when they don't go as far as to actually destroy them. But let's bring it even closer to where many of us live. We sacrifice our children on the altar of convenience when we don't take time to teach them in God's ways or when we're too busy to bother to take them aside and talk to them and pray with them and when, when they're struggling in their walk with God. It's like we don't care about that. Or when we refuse to deal with them the way we should. We don't take no time out to love them and show them that we care for them. And of course, there are a thousand other illustrations that could be given in a thousand other areas of life. When we are reluctant to devote one day in seven to worship our God, the worship of our God, but would not think of missing a big hockey game, we'd never do that, or our knitting class or whatever it is that we're into. Or when we support our own cravings for entertainment or for fast food, but say that we're unable to support the work of the church. Or when we're eager to call and straighten out an error that was made in a, a payment to us that we were supposed to receive, but are not willing to go and speak to a brother who has sinned against us and restore him. God sees all this. God takes notice of it all. God pictures his people as hankering after these other gods with an insatiable appetite. Verse 25 to verse 30 describe how they go out of their way to attract these other lovers. They build high places for them, houses for these gods. They have an appetite for them. They want more and more of them. Actually, very graphic language is used here to describe how desperate they were for these lovers. They were lusting after them because of the size of their genitals. The language is very rough and coarse here to show how wicked that we have been in our behavior. They, they act as if they are getting something from these lovers that they cannot get from God. It's that way. What, that, isn't that the way it always is when you go after other gods? You're saying, oh, this has something, this God has something that the true God doesn't have. You treat the Almighty as though he is not sufficient for you. This behavior was such that even the Philistines, we're told, were ashamed of Judah's lewd behavior. Their behavior was so vile that even Philistines were horrified by what they were doing to their God. There are two things that make it a marvel that we should ever commit this sin. First, that we're not utterly terrified to do this thing. God is a jealous, holy God. Second, that we're not ashamed to do such a thing when God has been so kind to us. Let's look at each of these. First, that we're not terrified to bring other gods before God. 
Surely a woman would be afraid to bring her lover right before her husband's face, especially if he were a strong, jealous man of strong principles and not some wimpy, pushover type of man. Surely if we know God to be a consuming fire who pours wrath upon his adversaries, we wouldn't dare to do such a thing. She would be afraid both for herself and for her lover, but that her husband would, would tear him to pieces when he saw him. The only reason that you can drag other gods before him is because you think God doesn't care or that God doesn't see. It's due to a lack of faith. You really don't believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, as well as the avenger of those who resist him. Your problem is a lack of faith. You don't know that you are before God. You don't believe that. Your life would be totally different if you consistently believe that God sees all things and takes notice of them and is much displeased when we have another God. I remember when I first studied these words before me in the first commandment. I remember it very well. I was in Montreal. And I remember as I was walking along the city, struggling with, uh, with various sins and temptations and thinking, I'm doing this before the face of God. Doing this before the face. And all summer I couldn't get away from that first commandment before the face of God. Now it can be a great comfort to be before the face of God. But it can also be something that terrify, is terrifying to know that he sees all that we think. So as a remedy for this, you need to meditate on the fact that he does see you, that he does notice, that he does get angry. Look at Ezekiel 16, 35 through 43. Here God declares that he will deal with his people in his wrath. First, he threatens that he will expose their shame before their lovers. Verse 35, now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children which you gave them, surely therefore I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure and all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all of your weak nakedness. In other words, the Lord is going to bring his people to public shame for this sin that they have committed. He's going to punish this sin openly in the sight of his people's paramours. It is going to expose the shameless way in which they had behaved. This is something that will happen on the day of judgment. Think about that. The day of judgment. Those who have apostatized from God will be exposed before those who led them astray. Their seducers will be appalled and horrified when they see clearly the husband that the bride of the Lord rejected. How could she do that when they see and understand the glory of God who do not know the glory of God now? They will be horrified to see what privileges the members of the visible church traded in in order to have them. That they left such a husband as God will be seen to be in that day for them, Egyptians, Assyrians, whatever they are. They will be amazed at how graciously God took such a bride. 
and how that bride could spurn him. Secondly, he threatens to punish them with the punishment that is due to an adulterous woman. Ezekiel 16.38 And I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. Of course, in the Bible, there's a death penalty for adultery or for murder. I will also give you into their hand, and they will throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, and leave you naked and bare. They shall also bring up an assembly against you, and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your horses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women, and I will make you cease playing the harlot, and you shall no longer hire lovers. Death is the penalty for adultery, and this is the description of the death that God brought to his people when he drove them out of the land. It was the very lovers that they had hired out that came and drove them out of the land and took them captive. Note that he used these former lovers to execute the sentence. Often those who commit adultery actually end up having great sorrow from the very hand of the one with whom they committed adultery. The one that you have an affair with ends up abusing you and cheating you in ways that you never imagined. It's not always so, but often that's the way God punishes his people. You see how this applies with spiritual harlotry? Those who make a God out of their money will have their sorrows from money. Those who make a God out of their spouse will have their sorrows from their spouse or out of their children will have their sorrows from their children. Those who look to drugs as their God to rescue them often find that drugs became, become their greatest enemy and they end up in bondage to the very thing that they came to for liberty, for comfort, for whatever they came instead of God. How we ought then to fear God who will punish this sin. Think about the whole idea of trusting in other nations like they did. If we trust in the government to protect us or something like that, that's the very thing that's going to end up oppressing you. This is what happened to them over and over and over. And thirdly, God shows that, that he does this out of his burning jealousy. By having other gods, we drive him to the point that he's forced to take these very severe measures. There is no other way for God's anger to be appeased but to repay our deeds with these severe measures. Look at verse 42, Ezekiel 16, 42. So I will lay to rest my fury upon you. His fury is stirred up. It's got to have an expression somewhere. Where will it be expressed? My fury toward you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry no more. So how will God do this? How will he lay it aside? Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things. Surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God. And you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. That ought to terrify us to do something before God's face. He is a jealous God and he says, I'll strip you down to nothing. 
I'll take away the privileges that I bestowed on you as a queen, and I'll reduce you to nothing if you do not repent. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So that's the first way that these words before me ought to deter us from having other gods. Because we know the terror of the Lord and we fear the Lord and his judgment. He's a jealous God. The second thing that makes it so amazing that we should turn to other gods right before the face of God is that we're not ashamed to do this. Now, this, of course, takes on a different approach. The one way we're afraid of getting punished, we're afraid of God's judgment. No, we should be ashamed of taking other gods. Here is the great God who has taken you to be his own. As Ezekiel 16 shows, you were far from a pretty sight when he found you. Look at verse 4. As for your nativity on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut. No one was taking care of you, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born being part of the fallen human race that has turned from God, you had nobody to love you and care for you. So what did the Lord do? The Lord who created you, and yet found you loathsome, repulsive in this condition, the Lord who hates evil and cannot dwell with uncleanness, what did he do? What did he do when he passed by? Verse 6 tells you, And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, in your blood, live. He gave you life. That's what he did. You were were dead in your sins. And he gave you life. He effectually called you with his powerful words to live. He took you to be his own when there was no beauty in you. And then you began to grow up in the beauty of the new life that he gave you. Verse 7. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And he even then established his covenant with you, so that you became, so that he became your God. He married you. Ezekiel 16, 8. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was a time of love. In other words, you were mature enough for marriage. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes. I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. He actually took you to be his people. And then he cleansed you. He gave you all sorts of precious things so that you were envied by others. You can see that in verses 9 through 14. He gave you his word. He gave you his promises. He gave you his protection, his wisdom, his Holy Spirit, his provision of daily bread, and much, much more. He taught you how to live well. He provided for you to live well as a new creation in Christ. But you see what happened according to verse 15 and following. What so often happens, what happens in a Christian society when God really blesses his people with all kinds of good things for, say, a few hundred years? What happens? Well, we take all of God's good gifts and we become proud. And we say, look at how great we are. Look at what we have done. Look at all that we have accomplished. Look at what a great society we are and what great laws we have. And we're the envy of the whole world. We acted as if the good gifts that we have didn't come from God. We started to trust in our own riches and our own beauty, as it says, instead of giving thanks to God. 
acting as if our riches and our beauty were something that we always had from ourselves. God told us where we were when he started with us. We ceased to be thankful to God for making us what we are. This is where spiritual adultery begins. We have seen this already in our study of the first commandment. You remember that? The trouble begins when what? You stop giving thanks to God and forget what he has done for you. You forget how Christ came into the world and shed his blood for you. How he changed you by his spirit so that you might come to God. You think, oh, I can do all that myself. How he establishes covenant with you to bless you forever. How is it that people turn from salvation by grace through Christ alone and his atoning sacrifice to salvation by my own efforts and my own works? How is it? You forget how wonderful also it is to live before the face of God. Like I said, that can be a wonderful thing to be before the face of God. Okay, you have his protecting care, protecting you, providing you. You have him where you can serve him and where you can represent him. To have his delight in you when you do something as simple as giving a cup of cold water in his name. I mean, what a, what a gentle husband. You know, we give someone a cup of cold water and he rewards us for it. To have him always accessible and ready to hear your prayers. To have him there to guide you and correct you when you go astray. To have him see the wrongs that are done to you and take pity on you when he hears you groaning. When you, when you sin and come to him that he's always ready to forgive you and to receive you again. There's a wonderful thing. Question is, when you see how kind and gracious the Lord is and how kind and gracious he has been to all of his people and to you in particular, how can it be that you should ever bring another lover right before his face? What do you see in this other lover? Sometimes people will see a woman suddenly turn on her husband even though he seems like the nicest guy in the world and everybody marvels. How could she do that? Why did she, do, why did she leave him? Why is she so ungrateful? Of course, very often, if you look behind the scenes, you'd find out that the husband wasn't treating her right at all. Indeed, uh, and didn't really care about her and love her. Her departure is wrong, but he did quite a lot to contribute to it. But this is not so with God, not at all. He has been the most faithful, most loving, most gracious, most true. The fault is entirely on our side. We brought nothing into the relationship. He gave everything to us. And now we turn to other gods. Where is your sense of shame when you do such a thing as a brazen harlot? It's a marvel that we should reject him. It's unspeakable ingratitude. How could you do such a thing? But now I want to show you something that is even a greater marvel. Even though the sin of having other gods is a brazen sin before the face of God, And even though it is done right before the face of God without fear of who he is, and even though it is done right before his face without shame when he has done so much for us, the greatest marvel of all is that God forgives his people for this sin. He forgives his people for their spiritual adultery when they come to him. You would think that the Lord would cut us all off for this sin especially you who have been called to be his people and who have been brought near to him and cared for in the visible church. Every one of you breaks this first commandment every day. Every time your heart goes to what is contrary to your relationship with God, 
It is because your heart is devoted to another God. You're attracted and drawn away, and it's all done right before God's eyes. And do you suppose that because this sin is so common that it makes it acceptable or more acceptable? It's one of the manifestations of our sinful nature that if we see a whole lot of other people doing the sin, then we say, oh, it's not really that bad. That's not true at all. It doesn't reduce your guilt. If everyone else is doing it, we say, it can't be so bad, can it? You know how children will use that to justify their bad behavior. Well, so-and-so did that. Okay, so that makes it better then somehow that they did it too. If you live in a society where rape is something that's done all the time and nobody's ashamed about it, then uh, it doesn't change the, the fact that rape is still a, a wicked thing to do just because everybody's doing it. Just because all of us break the first commandment every day, just because we all in various ways and to various degrees openly lust after other gods right in front of God's face, it doesn't make the sin excusable or more acceptable. We're all brazen harlots who carry out harlotry right before the eyes of God. Now you would think that God would cut us off for being such ungrateful wretches that he would completely cut us off. He would be perfectly justified to to do so. His wrath and anger against such brazen wickedness is not only justified, I tell you, it is necessary. God's anger against this is necessary. God would be corrupt if he tolerated such behavior of such a harlot and did not punish it. He is a pure and holy God and such wickedness is reprehensible to him. In fact, to do what is right, he must punish it severely. God would be doing wrong if he didn't punish us for our spiritual adultery severely. It is no wonder that God has sentenced the whole human race then to perish in the lake of fire forever. And how much more his covenant people who commit this sin, even after he has called them to be reconciled to him and made them his people in the visible church. The apostate Christian will perish with the ungodly and their punishment will be greater than those who never knew the will of God. Indeed, in verse 59, he says, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. But look at the marvelous mercy of God that is set forth at the end of this great chapter. It is set forth in verse 60 to 63. God says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you, that marriage covenant, in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. When I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. Just as God initially provided everything that we needed when he found us in our blood at birth. So now he is seen to provide even for the forgiveness 
of the sin of rejecting him for other gods after he has graciously redeemed us. It says that he provides atonement for us. And you know what that atonement is that he provided for Israel and for all his elect, do you not? Marvel of marvels. It is his own dear son, Jesus Christ. His own dear son, Jesus Christ, came into this world and joined himself to us so that he might bear our shame and our guilt before where? Before where? Before his father's face. So that he might bear our shame and guilt before his father's face. It is such an amazing thing. He who knew no sin became sin for us. On the cross, he bore all the shame of this brazen wife who brings her paramour right before the face of her husband. He, the holy, pure Lamb of God, became as that brazen harlot and bore all the shame and all the penalty that was due to her. How loathsome such conduct was to him. Yet, for us, it was done. There are many things that are incomprehensible about God. But surely His forgiveness is the greatest of all. How we should be drawn to Him with the cords of love. What grace is this? That the Son of God should bear the curse for many. That God the Father should send Him and accept His sacrifice for a wretch like me. For one like me who goes on adding more sin each day. That He would deliver us from this body of death. My brothers and sisters, He will deliver us from this body of death. If you turn to Him, He will deliver you. He has promised in His covenant that He will do so. He has given us the Holy Spirit to grant us repentance that we might at least turn against this vile sin of having any other God before Him. Yes, by the Spirit, He draws us back to Him. Ask Him to draw you to Him. You can't draw yourself. Ask Him to draw you to Him. Oh, that He would work in us to fully purge us from this sin. Blessed be His name who has given us forgiveness in Jesus Christ and has promised to make us holy when we, when we see Him in the last day. Our God graciously makes a distinction among those who are in covenant with Him between the hardened apostate who will not repent of her harlotry and the struggling bride who yearns to be true to him and who looks to Christ for salvation, even though she finds sin to be present in her life. Come to him, come before him in Christ, and he will receive you. He will receive you before his face. And that is the marvelous thing. All the difference between the struggling bride and the brazen harlot. Come to him as a struggling bride. He will receive you. Please stand and let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we read these words in Ezekiel, we confess that we don't see the depth of our depravity, of our sinful condition. It's a marvelous thing, Lord, that, that we should turn from you to other gods. It's a, it's a horrendous thing. Yet we do it, Lord, with hardly a thought. We don't really get it. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would have mercy upon us. We pray that you would help us to be ashamed of our conduct. We pray that you would help us to fear you, Lord, who is the God who, before all things, are naked and open and who punishes sin. We pray, Lord, that we would see your justice and your purity. We pray that you would help us to turn to you and to come to you as a broken a broken wife who realizes our shame and guilt and who knows that our Lord Jesus Christ bears this sin. He has borne this sin for us and he has to make intercession for us every day because every day we need that atonement applied to us. Father, we thank you that you have accepted us fully and that we can, we can take comfort and delight that even though we're struggling along, that you are our God and you have made atonement for us. It's an atonement that can cover our sin and it does cover our sin. We could never have made an atonement like that. We couldn't have done it at all. But we praise you that you did that, Lord. And that that's how this Ezekiel 16 chapter ends. Such an awful chapter about what we've done and about the penalty and condition of it. And such a wonderful chapter that ends with you making atonement. Father, we pray that we would find the, the joy that is ours in that, in that knowledge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Very encouraging. Receive the blessing of the Lord. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.